Rick Norsigian kept two boxes he bought at a garage sale under his pool table for four years before realizing they may be too valuable to store at home. The Fresno, California commercial painter learned that what was in those boxes he paid $45 for a decade ago could be worth more than $200 million. When I heard that $200 million, I got a little weak, Norsigian said. Art, forensic, handwriting, and weather experts teamed up to conclude the 65 glass plates in the boxes were photographic negatives created more than 80 years ago by Ansel Adams, the iconic American photographer whose images of the West inspired the country. Most Adams prints range between $4,000 to $70,000, and Norsigian had access to dozens of negatives, with which he could make countless more prints. Adams historians had believed the negatives were destroyed in a darkroom fire in 1937. According to another historian Norsigian consulted, Patrick Alt, Adams taught a class in Pasadena in the early 1940s. 1940s, and may have brought the glass negatives along as a teaching tool. How they ended up in a warehouse, however, is still unknown. In June, a single Adams print, clearing Winter Storm Yosemite National Park, sold for $722,500, setting a new auction record for an Adams print. Though he has yet to sell the prints, Norsigian stands to make a boatload of money. No, he's not my friend, but I wish he was. I wanted to uh, share that with you this morning because it fits so much into uh, what I want to share with you this morning. Because it demonstrates the point that we can have things of great value right under our noses and not realize it. We can have great treasure in our midst and forget that it's even there. This man had a treasure worth millions right under his pool table and didn't even know it. He bought it for $45 at a garage sale. He knew he had something, but he had no idea of its massive worth. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the believers in Corinth talks about God's massive treasure for us in this way. And Paul says, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you really know, do you really know, do you really know that God is for you? He is. God is for you. Hey, just for fun, turn to the person next to you and look at them and look them in the eye if you can and say, hey, God's for you. It's easy for us, those who call ourselves Christians, to lose sight, though, of all that we have because of God and his work through his son, Jesus Christ. It gets, if you will, put under the pool table and forgotten sometimes for long periods of time. Maybe some of you are just discovering the treasures of Jesus Christ. Others of us have known about them for a long time. And because of their familiarity, the wonder and the greatness of what we have in Jesus Christ has worn off. The truth that God is massively for us has gotten lost in the worries and activities of everyday life. 
Paul in this passage that was just read to us this morning is coming to a a close, if you will, of this section about who we are in Christ and what, what God has done for us and all the work. Paul is telling those Roman believers with regards to all that is true about them in Christ. And this is kind of his punchline. This is his finale. This is more than anything else what he wants them to remember. This is their test, if you will, to see if they really get it. So he puts in a series of questions to the believers in Christ. And these questions are just as important to us today. And they need to be asked by us and of us to assure us that there is a great God who is for us. You have your Bibles, let's look at these together because there's a whole lot of them in there. Let's start right with verse 31. He starts this out by, what then shall we, shall we say to these things? Well, if you're studying the Bible, the first thing you say is, what are these things? Well, we don't have time to go back and go through all of them, but most commentators will say he is at least referring to all the things that Paul has told us from at least Romans 5 right up to here. But we don't have to go that far. Let's just look at Romans chapter 8. And you, in effect, if you're doing a, 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 if you're in a group and you're going to be doing a, the study this week, you're going to be looking at a lot of these. But let me just go through some of them with you really quick. And of course, this all actually starts even before Romans 5 when, when Paul says, the wages of sin is death and all fall short of the glory of God. And we're going to go through all of those. But before I do, I want to stop and, and, and mention one thing. Just hold on to that there because I think this is important. I got a little ahead of myself. But Pastor Logan has been speaking to us about the realm of the zeros. And though corrupted by sin and having no hope apart from the work of Jesus, all men and women, yes, were created in the image of God, which gives each one of us worth in the eyes of God. But we are zeros with regards to our ability to raise ourselves out of the judgment of God and the life of sin and death in which we find ourselves. Only God can do that. We have no hope apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I was trying to think of a good illustration to kind of explain this. And first, I thought of a bank account that was empty or, or being bankrupt. But that might give us the idea that with some hard work, we could bring that account back up, right? In other words, there still might be hope that somehow we could earn the favor of God and become good enough for him. But my second thought, because my, my mind is kind of crazy, my second thought was the idea of a black hole in space. Scientists believe that black holes can be massive. In fact, they, they think that the black hole that's in our galaxy is estimated to have a mass of four million suns. Just a small thing, right? 
And listen to this. Its gravitational pull is so great that even, listen to this, that even light cannot escape it. Even light is sucked into the black hole with no chance of escaping. That, my friends, is the best picture that I could come up with to illustrate our destiny apart from Jesus. No hope, no chance, no future, zero chance. And we live in a world that is trying to no avail to find their way apart from Jesus. And that is the realm of the zeros. We are in a black hole without Jesus. The only way we really understand the power of the statement that God is for us is to know how desperately we need him. Let me say that again. The only way we really understand the power of the statement that God is for us is to know how desperately we need him. And Paul has spent the better part of the last few chapters of this letter to the Romans proclaiming and explaining all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ so that we no longer need to live that desperate life. These things. We don't have time, like I said, to run through all of them, but let's look quickly at Romans 8, okay? Starts out with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. No. By the way, this would be a wonderful chapter for you to read over and over and over and over and over again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? Zero. Number two, we are set free in Christ from the law of sin and death. We are set free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Three, the very spirit of God resides in you and that spirit leads you if you are in Christ. Number four, you are an adopted son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are children of God. Number five, you are heirs with God. You are fellow heirs with Christ. We don't get that. In Colossians chapter three, Paul says this. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. He's going to share his glory with you. We will be glorified with Christ. Our bodies will be redeemed. The Spirit of God prays for us. And God will work all things together for good for those of us who have answered the call of God. And God chose you. If you know Jesus, God chose you to be justified and glorified for all eternity. This is just a small picture of what Paul is referring to when he says, what shall we say about all of these things? There are many more. There are many more. And so look again at verse 31, at the second question that's there. It says, if, so if God is for us, who can be against us? 
My goodness, we forget this, don't we? And by the way, this is not an if-then question. He's not saying to the believers, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. After everything that Paul has said to them, the if isn't if, the if is you should get this now. There is a God that is for you. So if God is for us in Christ, we win. No matter what comes our way, no, no one or nothing can stand against the plan, the power, the love of God for those who are his. But look at what Paul says in verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He didn't even spare his own son. He didn't give him just a little bit of what we deserve. He gave him everything that we deserve. God had nothing greater to give us, us who have nothing to offer him. He gave his son to suffer the full extent of the punishment, not only for our sin, but for the sin of the world the full punishment of all that we deserve. All of the evil of the world, past, present, and future, was laid up on him. God gave his son to you and for you and for me. In case we have lost sight of this, Paul basically is throwing in the big one, isn't he? We see it at football games and everything. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For, verse 17, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God is for you. Church, nothing can outdo that. Nothing can win against that. Oh, we may have things that come against us, but come on, who are they? And what power do they have compared to God? God has taken their power away by giving his son, Jesus Christ, for you. Do you think God might be for you? He didn't have to. No one twisted his arm. He didn't need us. He was under no obligation, yet he didn't spare his son. He gave his son. We didn't deserve anything, yet he gave everything for you and me. Look at what he says there. He says, who can be against us when God is for us? And yet we question whether he is a good God. We question whether he cares about us. But look at the rest of verse 32. It says that he gave his son up for us. And then it says, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? This does not mean that we should expect God to give us everything that we want. That's not Paul's point. 
His point is that if God has gone as far as to give his son, Jesus Christ, up for us, then he will certainly give us the other things we need to live victorious for him in this life. If he gave his son, he's saying, duh, it's a no-brainer that he'll give us the other things that we need. All things are those things that give us what we need to defeat the enemy and live for him. Those things are what Paul has told us about in the earlier part of this chapter that we just read. See, God is not only our defender, but our provider. He will not also with him, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, we can be assured that everything else he has promised by his grace, he will give. In other words, like I said, just look back. Just look back just in this chapter. He gives us the spirit, sonship, inheritance, co-heirs with Christ, spirit interceding for us, taking evil and making good out of it. Commentator that I came across this week, his name is Murray, and he says this about this section of scripture. Got that up there? Some of it's a little older English, so. But, but get this, the greatest gift of the Father, the most precious donation given to us, was not thing. It was not calling, nor justification, nor even glorification. It is not even the security with which the apostle concludes his peroration, in other words, closing remarks of verse 39. These are favors dispensed, listen to this, these are favors dispensed in fulfillment of God's gracious design. But the unspeakable and incomparable gift is the giving up of his own son. So great is that gift. So marvelous are its implications, so far-reaching its consequences, that all graces of lesser proportion are certain of free bestowment. If he's done that, he will give us whatever else we need. God giving his son freely for us is the assurance that all other forms of grace will also be given. Paul continues, though, in this it's, it's almost a rant of the love and the grace of God for us in the form of more questions. Keep going. Let's go to verse 333. I want you to look at, at all, the, all the who's that are in here, okay? It says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is that a duh question? Well, nobody can, right? Because what does it say? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn well, the answer is no one, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. He took our condemnation. But look what else it says about him. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It is God who justifies. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we will have accusers. We know that Satan will accuse us. We also know that God is the one who has graciously justified us, made us righteous through the blood of Christ. Who can be against us? Oh, there will be some, you can guarantee of that. But God's in charge and has paid all the charges that could be brought against us. You think he might just be for you? You think he might just be for you? 
keep going and, and look again at verse 34. Who, who is to condemn? Paul is driving this point very hard because it's so important that we get this truth. Jesus was condemned in our place. He was condemned for us. God gave his perfect son up for us to take the punishment for our sins. To have placed upon him the condemnation that we deserve. And when condemnation raises its ugly head, Jesus just says, I paid for that. He is interceding for us. Paul's last push to get us to see how much God is for us starts in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We get everything that Paul has already told us. We know the answer to this, at least in our heads. Absolutely nothing. With what follows, I believe we can assume that Paul is speaking a bit from personal experience here. Yes, he knows that his Roman readers have had struggles and opposition. Paul knows that the struggles of this life will come, but they will never separate you from the love of God. Paul remembers the psalm about the Jewish followers of God. And, verse, and, and it talks about the fact, it, it, what we have here, it says, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds like defeat, doesn't it? But God says no. That's not defeat. Yeah. In fact, in verse 36 of that psalm, the psalmist says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love in the midst of that. Even in the midst of your deepest struggles, you are not separated from the love of God. Can I say that again? Even in the midst of your deepest struggles, you are not separated from the love of God because of who God is and because you are his. He is for you. Nothing can take his love from you. It is not conditional. Evil will not win. God's love will win. Notice though also if you look at verse 37, it says that Paul does not and it says Paul does not say that we are conquerors. He does not say we are conquerors. He says that we are more than conquerors. You see, a conqueror in, in, in where, when Paul lived would be, would be one who would come and take the best and leave the rest. That's what conquerors did. Take the best and leave the rest. He defeats and he takes. And in the world in which he lived and in the world in which we live, that cycle plays out over and over again. But Paul says we are more than conquerors. What we have, what has been given to us freely and can never and will never be taken away by any conqueror, nothing that comes our way can take away what we have in Christ. All of our enemies, our accusers, our condemners, 
Those who would treat us badly, abuse us, use us, even kill us, they don't win. They don't separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors because of his love, because of his grace, because he gave his son, because he has demonstrated in so many ways that he is for us. In Christ, the enemy loses. He is conquered. Nothing can defeat us in Christ. Nothing can separate us from his love. He is the God of all creation who loves us unconditionally. He is for us. He wins. And those of us who are his win. It's so hard to, uh, to preach this passage to us who are believers because we know it some well, so well that we often forget the magnitude of what is being said here. Remember the man from Fresno who bought those boxes for $45 at a garage sale. Didn't know what they were worth until much later. Well, you and I don't have wooden boxes but we have something much greater, something that is priceless. We have a cross and an empty tomb. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, freely given by God who is, by a God who is for us. Maybe we need to take some time to really examine what we have. To come face to face with a God that has demonstrated how much he is for us. How much he loves us. And by the way, these truths should transform us. Nothing this life might throw at us can defeat us and take away our eternal victory in Christ. Nothing can remove us from the love that the creator of all things has for us. For all eternity. God removed us from the black hole of sin, the hole of our own making, not because he had to, not because we somehow earned it, not because he needed us, not because to him it was no big deal, not because it cost him nothing to do it, but simply because he wanted to, out of love for us. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Apart from God, we once were nothing. God makes us something in Christ. Apart from God, we once could earn nothing. God gives us everything in Christ. Apart from God, we were once slaves. God has made us sons and daughters through Christ. Apart from God, we once were under judgment. God has set us free through Christ. Apart from God, we once had nothing. He has made us co-heirs with Christ. Apart from God, we once had a death sentence. He has sent Christ to die in our place. Apart from God, we once had no hope. He has given us more hope than we could ever imagine through Christ. Apart from God, we were seeking for love and acceptance. He has given us love beyond all dreams. 
and has taken up residence in us through Christ. Apart from God, we were once alone, fighting through the difficulties of this life. God is in us. God is with us. God loves us and is for us no matter what. And this is the God that you know. Or is a question better there? Is this the God that you know? I would be amiss at this point if I didn't go back to the beginning phrase of the second question that Paul asked in verse 31. And the phrase begins with the word, if. If God is for us. Maybe you have never turned your life over to Jesus, or maybe you have never experienced or even heard of a God that is for you. Maybe you would like to know his love, his forgiveness, and be a son or a daughter of his. Maybe you have lived your life your own way and have thought you really had no need for a God to be for you, but now you recognize you do. Maybe you are one who has been in church for years, but has never really confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If this is you, I want to beg you not to leave here without taking care of that, without doing business with God, a God that loves you, a God that's for you. You know, it's interesting that that, that, this, that this question starts with the word if. And if you go to Romans chapter 10, there's an important section for those of you that may be seek, seeking that also begins with if. And Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, if you do this, you will experience a God who is for you in ways that you cannot imagine. I want to stop right now because I don't know if there's someone here that might desire to know a God who is for them. So we're going to just bow our heads. And if that is you this morning and you want to know this God who is for you, who loves you unconditionally, you can just pray those words that Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 10. And so do it something like this. Lord Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. I invite you into my heart. I ask you to forgive me and make me a son of yours. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is amazing, it is amazing, church, that there can be things that we have that we forget about or at least forget about their worth, isn't it? Or sometimes we just have no, no idea of their worth. I'm just going to admit to you that I'm still learning and growing in my understanding of all that it means that God is for me. I pray that you are learning with me but you see, understanding all that it means that God is for you and loves you far beyond reason is much more, hear this, is much more than a theological truth 
to be put in our memory banks and pulled out every once in a while. That would be like the man who discovered what was in that box under his pool table, just closing up the boxes and putting it back where he found it. He had found something of great value that, he, that could be life-changing for him and for others. He can make prints from those plates and not only make money for himself, but share with the world some great work, magnificence of that treasure. And that was right under his nose. Or should we say, actually, under his pool table. As we learn about the God who is for us, it ought to change us. How we live, for whom we live, it ought to make us want to share with the world the great treasure of the cross and the empty tomb that demonstrates that there is a great God who loves us and is continuing to demonstrate his unsearchable love for us. So the question, do you know, do you know that God is for you? Do you know that nothing can separate you from his love. God is for you. All right, now I'm gonna ask you to do something that's a whole lot harder. I want you to turn to someone next to you and look them in the eye and say, God is for me. That's the harder thing to say, isn't it? We can say God is for you, but to truly believe that God is for me is the truth that we just read, is the truth that we just looked at. And nothing can take that away from us. This truth is a source of great strength in a world of turmoil and is a cause for great celebration and great proclamation. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? My final question for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know what you've got? Let's pray. God, thanks for the reminder this morning of who you are and what you've done for us and what you are continuing to do for us through Jesus who is interceding for us and telling our accusers forgiven God help us to know that there is nothing that can separate us from your love that as followers of yours there is nothing we can do to make you love us less and there is nothing we can do to make you love us more you just out of your grace have demonstrated the greatness of your love as you gave your son for us. God, remind us of what we have in you and help us to live lives that demonstrate that we are grateful, that we are overjoyed, that nothing can separate us from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.